Welcome to the Reality Taboo, where no topic is off limits. I'm Jeff. Joining me is my co-host, Ness. It's February 16th, 2024. This week's episode is a bit of a hodgepodge of topics, including how upholding rigorous standards seemingly inevitably leads to disparate impact, how elites think about various issues, why the war in Israel-Gaza is getting so much more attention than other horrific events occurring at the same time, and we'll also give our thoughts on the recent Super Bowl. Before we get started, please remember to like, share, and subscribe. Thanks for listening. So topic one is standards or diversity. Pick one. Equality and equity. These are words we hear a lot. Equality is almost old-fashioned nowadays. Equity is the trendier word. I remember last year, Senator Bernie Sanders was asked on Bill Maher's show, what's the difference between equity and equality? And Sanders couldn't answer the question. He's obviously advanced in age, so his perplexity is understandable since this is a relatively new word. The best I can figure it is that equality is what was promised during the civil rights era of the 1960s, that everyone should be guaranteed the equal opportunity to succeed. So no, so no discrimination based on things like race, like sex. To most people, it didn't mean that everyone was guaranteed an equal outcome. Equity is more nuanced. It means that systems of oppression, usually if not exclusively the result of white supremacy, have been constructed over the centuries that hold black people back from success. These forms of oppression are more subtle and insidious, unlike blunder systems like slavery and Jim Crow laws. Ness, is there anything you would want to add to that dichotomy between equity and equality, or do you think that's a fair, fair explanation? From standards or diversity, choosing between one of the two, uh, I think another way to conceptualize it is liberty equality, or diversity. Choose only one. Well, the cultural revolution never stops. And once you achieve equality uh, in terms of isonomy, equality under the law, you aren't going to end up with equity because, because cultures are different and human biodiversity is real. But these realities are a taboo. And so consequently, there has to be some explanation as to why when equality has been given, equity isn't achieved. And so the way that that circle is squared is that we state that equity is what is needed to achieve true equality because even though it appears that we have equality we don't have equity and if the priors are that we should have equality of outcome if we have equality under the law and we don't well we have to come up with some explanation as to why and so naturally we morph from equality to equity it's interesting too looking at google engrams for the phrases social equality and social equity over time we have to use those qualifiers because if you just look at equity versus equality you get equity in the traditional sense of the the value of an asset like the equity in a house and so it's hard to tease those two out but if we just look at social equity versus social equality um, in the 1960s social Equality was used about 20 times as frequently in published books as the term social equity was. Fast forward now to today, most recently, and it's social equality. Still used more often, but only twice as frequently as social equity. And social equality has grown a little bit. Social equity has grown exponentially, like by more than an order of magnitude over the last 50 years. So equality is... uh 
relates to the procedure or the process versus equity relates to the outcome. I think I agree with that definition. And I would argue that to many leftists, achieving equity, that is equality of outcomes, is the closest thing that that many of them have to a religion. As Christianity has waned in the U.S., the religion of equity has replaced it. It's taken on faith that things like diversity and inclusion are inherently good. And so, as a consequence, they are seen to be self-evidently good, just as uh, Christians have faith in the virgin birth of Jesus' miracles, liberals or church of woke adherents believe that diversity, inclusion are self-evidently righteous. And a key tenet of that is that race is a social construct. The tenet of equity requires you to believe that race is completely socially constructed. So any differences between races are negligible at most and limited to superficial characteristics like skin color, hair texture, height, etc. So as a logical consequence of that belief, any disparity in outcome between races on things like test scores and crime is due entirely to environmental social factors. And so it follows that if we just change things around, whether it's government programs, education, whatever, we can eliminate racial disparities. So needless to say, the claim that inherent biological differences exist between different groups of people is taboo, perhaps the strongest taboo in the modern world. And so there are countless examples of how this plays out in the U.S. And so I'm going to discuss a recent article in the Wall Street Journal. It's dated February 4th, 2024. The title is, In the Battle Over Early Algebra, Parents Are Winning. And so this relates to uh, San Francisco. And um, the San Francisco's public school district uh, set off a years-long fight with parents when it decided to prevent students from taking algebra until high school. An attempt to combat racial inequities in math by waiting until more students were ready. So in most uh, school districts in the United States, how it works regarding algebra is that students can choose when to enroll in algebra based on parent or teacher recommendations. And these systems tend to result in fewer black and Latino students on the fast track. Nationally, 48% of Asian students reach calculus before graduation, compared with 22% of white students. 14% of Latino students, and 11% of black students. And a study by Stanford recently released said that San Francisco's policy largely failed in its equity goals, with the proportion of black and Latino students enrolling in advanced placement math courses hardly moving. And so this is an example where you see the religion of equity taking center stage. The people responsible for this policy would rather have everybody score equally poorly than some people score poorly and some people score high. That hierarchy in results by race is replicable on virtually every sort of, any kind of battery of 
cognitive capacity really in any domain maybe with a slight exception when it comes to verbal versus visuospatial or, or mathematical when, when when the latter in the latter case asian the asian advantage tends to be wider than it is in language arts but effectively that asians on top then whites then hispanics then blacks can be replicated in in any kind of test uh, in any industry at any level for anything that has a significant cognitive component attached to it and the idea that you were alluding to earlier that the the assertion that race is a social construct and that to the extent that it that it does exist biologically it's only in traits that are inconsequential that are that are vestigial and don't affect anything at all uh, but that it doesn't influence the things that are meaningful for society survival and social cooperation and reproduction and all of these other things that the theory of evolution rests upon mattering is ridiculous on its face but that is what is maintained with a straight face and what's also maintained with a straight face is that the systems of white supremacy that have been in place since the founding of the country those are a big uh, reason why black students score so much lower and it just never seems to account for why Asians do significantly better than whites and this this article is just one of, like Ness was saying, countless examples where you see that same hierarchy, Asians, whites, Hispanics, blacks. And it's just a curious um, aspect of the white supremacist system that Asians wind up above whites. Yeah, and if we group Jews in with whites, then we have the the ordering that we, we mentioned previously. If If Gentiles are broken out from Jews among people of European descent, primarily European descent, and most Jews, the vast majority of Jews in the United States who are Ashkenazi identify racially as white, but if they're broken out from uh, non-Jewish whites, then we see that it's Jews at the top and then Asians and then Gentile whites, Hispanics, and blacks. And that five-tiered system holds just as reliably across any sort of measure of anything that has a cognitive component as the four-tiered racial ordering that we refer to previously does. So next story I want to talk about, also from the Wall Street Journal. This is dated February 9th. Oakland grapples with rising crime. When the cops leave, they come. Oakland's only In-N-Out burger will shut down on March 24th. This is the fast food chain's first time closing a location in its 75-year history. The mayor of Oakland, Mayor Sheng Tao, sounds like someone of Southeast Asian descent, so that's the mayor, said, quote, The surge of crime and violence that we are seeing in our streets is completely unacceptable. She said the city was increasing police recruitment and investing in community and violence intervention effort. The Oakland Police Department said it's working with local prosecutors and other in the community to improve public safety. And it looks like even the Oakland branch of the NAACP is uh, raising a fuss about this and, and attributing the problem at least partly to uh, understaffing uh, with the police department. And so here's another example where I think equity collides with having 
standards because we just see the cycle repeat constantly. Um, most recent, I would say the most recent full cycle began in May 2020 when George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis. There was a widespread uh, defund the police movement. A lot of municipalities across the country drastically cut the funding for their police, um, restructured the police departments, and this also a lot of uh, veteran police officers left because they were just sick of dealing with it anymore, dealing with what's become a, a terrible, unappreciated job. So many of them quit. So as a predictable consequence, crime went up. And now I would say we're in the middle of going back to the uh, more tough on crime policies, a backlash against the the defund the police movement. And so you just see this cycle. If you look at the crime rates, the black, black people are responsible for the majority of the violent crime in the country. And so we have this just dilemma that I don't see how it can be solved, where if you apply rigorous prosecution standards, the consequence will be disproportionate disproportionate number of black Americans ending up in prison. And the only the, and then when we pull back and we stop prosecuting as many crimes, crime goes up. And this the cycle repeats and repeats. So we get this is to bring it back to the trichotomy that I referenced earlier. The struggle is between liberty and equality initially. We want the liberty for people to do whatever it is that they want to do to live freely. But what ends up happening in that case is that we have disparate impact in terms of who commits crimes and who's victimized by crimes. And so we get a pushback against that, the, the liberty and the consequences that come with liberty in the name of achieving equality, in reducing the disparity in arrest outcomes and victimization rates and all of that sort of thing. But the only way to achieve that equality of outcome is to restrict liberties that people have either through prosecutorial discretion where groups that are, are not wanted to be perceived as perpetrating high levels of crime or simply well, when they commit crime, it's it look the other way. They're not charged. And then when the man bite dog story happens to somebody like uh, Daniel Penny, who engages in some sort of action that is not discivilizational, but can be prosecuted that way, then the book comes down on him in an effort to achieve that equality, but it strips liberty away entirely. So this is a cycle where it's chasing liberty, can't get it, chasing equality, and really neither can ever be achieved in any significant measure because we have that third element, diversity, and that's what we're talking about, where you choose one of the three. You get liberty, equality, or diversity. So this is a narrative story about how liberty and equality are both being chased, neither are being achieved, and the reason is because of the diversity. All right, the final story on this topic I wanted to discuss was a recent um, headline I came across in the New York Post. Navy again lowers requirement as it struggles to meet recruitment goals. The way it's been is that if you showed up at a Navy recruiting office, you had to have an educational credential like a high school graduation. You had to have graduated high school or have a GED to get in through the door. And then you had to take the armed forces qualification test and get a passing score. 
And so in December 2022, the Navy lowered the AFQT bar from 31 to 10 for high school graduates. And now they've dropped the high school graduation qualification altogether for recruits to score higher than 50. So I think this is just yet another example of if you have rigid standards that apply to everyone, you're not going to get necessarily the absolute numbers you want or the um, number of of racial minorities. And so I think this relates, I think another part of this story is that from what I could gather, the data I saw, the black and Hispanic rate of recruitment has stayed pretty close to the same. The majority or the the biggest um, drop in overall recruitment comes from the white recruitment numbers going down. And I can't help but think that has something to do with the military's approach to racial issues. In 2021, the military released this advertising campaign titled The Calling. And uh, my favorite of those ads was this one from 2021. I call it The Girl with Two Mommies ads. Uh, Not sure if you've heard this. I'm going to play a bit of it now. This is the story of a soldier who operates your nation's Patriot Missile Defense Systems. It begins in California with a little girl raised by two moms. Although I had a fairly typical childhood, took ballet, played violin, I also marched for equality. I like to think I've been defending freedom from an early age. When I was six years old, one of my moms had an accident that left her paralyzed. Doctors said she might never walk again, but she tapped into my family's pride to get back on her feet. Eventually standing at the altar to marry my other mom. With such powerful role models, I finished high school at the top of my class and then attended UC Davis where I joined a sorority full of other strong women. But as graduation approached, I began feeling like I'd been handed so much in life, a sorority girl stereotype. Sure, I'd spent my life around inspiring women, but what had I really achieved on my own? One of my sorority sisters was studying abroad in Italy. Another was climbing Mount Everest. I needed my own adventures, my own challenge. And after meeting with an army recruiter, I found it, a way to prove my inner strength and maybe chatter some stereotypes along the way. I'm U.S. Army Corporal Emma Malone Lord, and I answered my calling. So I think that's a good representation of what the military has been turning into uh, as it's gotten more political and the top brass at the military are focused on getting more black, Hispanic, transgender, basically any non-heterosexual white males. And so as a result, the white male recruitment numbers have been going down and the cycle continues. Um, Now, apparently, the army has completely dropped that uh, the calling campaign ad. And so they actually, the army actually delisted the two mommies ad on YouTube, making it harder to find the videos on the platform. 
and three or four months ago, the Army brought back the Be All You Can Be slogan. That I, um, and so the recent ad they, they put out about three months ago featured a group of mostly young white men. The main character was uh, a young white man parachuting out of a helicopter, and it emphasized teamwork and camaraderie and brotherhood. Um, it's hard to think of a more 180 flip that the military could have done in such a short period of time. Well, it's not just the racial aspect or the sexual orientation aspect, too. There's a, a really strong class aspect that comes through. You notice that that made up. First of all, that ad with the two mommies is, is fictitious, almost certainly. There's, if you can't hear it if you're just looking at the, or listening to the audio, but if you watch the video, you'll see that it's it's animated. It's it's not real. None of those characters are real. The story isn't real. It may be loosely based on the character actor who comes in at the very end and is shown as an actual person, but the first. 98% of the ad is just animated drawings of a situa- situation that allegedly happened, but almost certainly did not. Uh, but you'll notice the the protagonist in that ad mentions how other people who went to the, who were in the uh, UC system, like she was, had gone to, to Italy and doing all of these things that are very upper class pursuits that are not available Obviously, well, not uh, maybe not obviously to the class uh, that that ad is directed towards, but for middle Americans, obviously, that's those types of options are not available to the average person in flyover America to go traipsing through Europe at the age of 18 or spending time in Italy or all of these other things that are only possible if you come from the upper classes or the very top of the upper middle classes. Another thing that's big among those sets is the idea of self self actualization, um, and you contrast that to the ad that Jeff was talking about, where you have more middle American demographics depicted, and also you have them involved in team exercises that are about an objective that is outside an extrinsic objective, as opposed to the intrinsic personal development objectives that are lionized in that first ad. And so this appeals to an entirely different set of people, of people who want to achieve something by working towards it and are not so status obsessed as the very narrow set that that first ad was directed towards. And so it's not surprising that the results from that recruitment ad uh, with the two mommies was, was completely ineffective. What is a little more surprising is that they did pull it, uh, and I think that gets to the fact that unlike a lot of the other uh, corporate Fortune 500 companies that can afford that sort of bloaty nonsense about self-actualization and DEI initiatives and all that sort of, of deadweight costs, uh, when it comes to the military, they actually need people who are competent, who can fight, who can be logistically effective in foreign territories. And and so the pulling is an admission of the fact that the U.S. military, where it is right now, simply can't afford the BS anymore, or at least is perceiving that it can no longer afford the BS as the, we have the withdrawal in Afghanistan and the disaster in Ukraine and 
the potential conflagration waiting to go off in the Middle East and then uh, military conflict with Iran. The U.S. military is stretched thin. It can't even win proxy wars when it outfunds its opposition 10 to 1. If it comes to a hot war with U.S. forces directly involved, well, it the two mommies and the, the ghost recruitment that that brings in just isn't going to cut it. And I think that's becoming apparent. And so I, I welcome this attempt. In some ways, I welcome the attempt to try to pull middle America back in to be cannon fodder for the global homo American empire, because I think it's a sign of desperation. It's not something that they want to do because, uh, because as we've mentioned over and over how important status is, and that is a much lower status ad, the one with a bunch of blue collar white guys out in a field or jumping out of a helicopter or whatever the case is, as opposed to the woman with who's breaking down barriers and shattering glass ceilings and and all of this sort of thing. And so it's, it's lower status. It's not something that the military or anyone in the upper echelons of our managerial system wants to be associated with, but they're increasingly feeling like they have to out of desperation because we have to have people who can fight if we're going to get in all of these wars all across the globe. So I looked up the numbers. We have 3,000 service people in Jordan, 2,000 in Syria, 6,000 in Iraq. And by the way, in Iraq, the prime minister has asked the U.S. to get out of his country. 3,000 in Saudi Arabia, 13,000 each in Kuwait and Qatar, 7,000 in Bahrain, 5,000 in the UAE, 600 in Oman, and 2,500 in Turkey. So that's a total of 55,000 just in the Middle East. You're listening to the Reality Taboo podcast. We're moving on to topic number two, elite theory. I read this article in the Wall Street Journal recently. It's entitled, Luxury Beliefs That Only the Privileged Can Afford. And so it's written by this uh, young man who comes from a rough background and um, foster care system and he was able to get into Yale, and so he's writing about his experience there. He says, I thought that by entering a place like Yale, we were, be giving, we were being given a privilege as well as a duty to improve the lives of those less fortunate than ourselves. Instead, I often found among my fellow students what I call luxury beliefs, ideas and opinions that confer status on the upper class, but often inflict real costs on the lower class. classes. For example, a classmate told me, monogamy is kind of outdated and not good for society. I asked her what her background was and if she planned to marry. She said she came from an affluent, stable, two-parent home, just like most of our classmates. She added that yes, she personally planned to have a monogamous marriage, but quickly insisted that traditional families are old-fashioned and that society should, quote, evolve beyond them. And so today, when luxury goods are more accessible to ordinary people than ever before, the elite need other ways to broadcast their social position. This helps explain why so many are now decoupling class from material goods and attaching it to beliefs. Yeah, the importance of status hasn't changed over time. In the past, when noblesse oblige was a, was a, a, a perceived social imperative, the way that people in the upper class expressed their high status was in material ways. They had nicer clothes, they had luxury goods, they had larger plots of land, they would create conspicuous uh, public works that would remind people that they had the means to put those public works into place. But as the material 
discrepancies between the upper classes and everyone else have been reduced the status has to be achieved in another way and so i think the way the status is is achieved now is somewhat akin to what the male peacock does in the animal kingdom where it has this belief or this tail in the case of the peacock that is not effective in terms of survival and if it it just like these luxury beliefs if they're put into practice they're disastrous but those who express and espouse support for those beliefs are so well off that they are able to push those beliefs and not be driven into the ground by the consequences but if those who are aspiring to that higher status but don't have that higher status and all of the social benefits that come along with it, stable household, um, access to all of the best tutors and schools, uh, living in safe neighborhoods, uh, all of these sorts of things. If those aspiring lower down the ladder don't have access to those types of things and try to implement these luxury beliefs that the upper class can espouse, they will come crashing down to earth for following them. And so things like illicit drug use and out-of-wedlock birth, promiscuity and the like, it is disastrous. And so the situation socially is pretty perverse now. In the past, the aspirations of the middle and lower classes to reach what the upper classes had achieved was beneficial for society. The things that the upper classes did were were beneficial or at least neutral. Now, to to broadcast that status, the upper classes in broadcasting the status to the extent that the middle and lower classes follow what the upper classes uh, proclaim to be the higher moral values that are actually inverted moral values, it has a disastrous effect on broader society. This is something that Charles Murray um, has looked at in Coming Apart, or distinguishes between Belmont and Fishtown. And as he, he did all the way back in the bell curve, he removes uh, race from the, from the analysis, so it's just an analysis of whites, to, to take racial confounding out of the equation. But of course, if race is interjected, then the disparities become even more pronounced. Fortuitously, I came across a report this week on this topic. It's called Them versus U.S., The Two Americas and How the Nation's Elite is Out of Touch with Average Americans. This was prepared by the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. And so they look at how the views of elites and everyone else differ. And so for this uh, methodology... They defined elites as those having a postgraduate degree, a household income of more than 150000 annually, and living in a zip code with more than 10,000 people per square mile. This is about 1% of the total U.S. population. So here's some of the findings. Only about 20% of all Americans say they believe their finances are getting better now. But among the elites, that number, number more than triples to 74% who say they're better off. And when Americans are asked if there's too much or too little freedom, elites are three times more likely to say that there's too much individual freedom in America than all Americans. 77% of elites favor rationing of energy, gas, and meat to combat climate change. Among all Americans, 63% oppose this policy. 
And so it goes on like this, but these are the kind of uh, disparities that you see. So that climate change one really stood out to me because it's it's a vivid illustration of what Ness was talking about, to where if that scheme were to be implemented, the people who would be hurt would be poor people and middle class. The elites, the rich would have enough money to get around it to where they probably wouldn't be affected at all. All right, next we're going to move on to another subtopic that I think might be related to this luxury beliefs topic, but we're going to discuss why the war in Gaza and Israel is getting so much more attention than other, I would argue, equally horrific events that are occurring simultaneously. Um, The one that comes to my mind is the ongoing war in Sudan which began in April 2023. As of January of 2024, at least least 13,000 up to 15,000 people had been killed. 33,000 were injured. Um, As of December of 2023, there were over 5.8 million internally displaced. um, And then 1.5 million had fled the country uh, of Sudan as refugees. And massacres are happening again in Darfur, site of the early 2000s massacre. And yet that's going on. It has been going on and it's been, it's gotten a small fraction of the, at least of the United, the American press, uh, press's attention. Um, why do you think that is, Ness? Who, whom, to quote Lenin, I think that's the pertinent question here. And the the who is more related to who the perpetrator is than it is to who the victim is, although both of those things factor in to some degree. In the case of Israel and the Palestinians, Israel effectively is perceived as, as a sort of avatar for whiteness, for Westernism especially in contrast to the Palestinians. And so when it's viewed through that lens, it is white colonial oppressors oppressing non-white victims. And so that's why it's getting so much attention. In the case of something like Sudan, well, that doesn't work because the perpetrators are not white. They're not Western. And the reason I say that the perpetrators are more important than the victims because the objection might be raised, well, what about those of European descent, why white, there are white victims in certain cases that do get attention, say in the case of Russia and Ukraine, where prior to October 7th and what popped off in the Middle East, Ukrainians were perceived as about the most sympathetic people in the world, that, that they're white, they're white victims, but it was the perpetrators who were also white, also Slavic, but they were Russian. Whereas in the case of, say, South Africa, where whites have been oppressed quite brutally for decades now, it receives almost no attention internationally because the perpetrators are non-white. So again, the, the most important aspect is who the perpetrators are, um, who the victims are also matters to some degree, but I don't think it is nearly as determinative a factor. All right, time for our final topic. Maybe it'll be a little bit lighter than the others. We'll see. It is Super Bowl 58, which occurred on February 11th. There were 124 million viewers. I'm not a fan of sports ball. I never have been. Uh, I did watch the 
part of the Super Bowl. I, I could only make it through about a quarter uh, or so. And I was honestly shocked by some of the things that I saw, at least the, the, the quantity of them. So right at the beginning, you had the Black National Anthem, um, and then the ads. There was this bizarre Christian ad featuring various people, mostly white people, washing the feet of a lot of non-white people. There was a white priest washing the feet of what looked like a transgender black person. Um, there were ads for Pfizer. There were ads for junk food, for alcohol, for gambling, which I guess uh, over the last few years, a lot of states have loosened the gambling laws where you can, it's a lot easier to gamble now. So that was all over over the, the commercials. So there were completely degenerate music artists. Um, Ice Spice was sitting up with Taylor Swift and I, they had uh, Ice Spice and Taylor Swift had collaborated recently. And uh, Ice Spice's latest, one of her latest songs is called Think You the Shit, parentheses, Fart. And it's just, it's just a, it, it's somewhat of a side topic. It's just uh, astonishing to me that, that so many white liberal women will defend uh, rap music, which is genuinely misogynistic. So the largest event ever that acts as evidence to how much of an effective prognosticator Mike Judge was. He got the timeline a little wrong because he thought it would take longer than, than 20 years to get where we are now. I thought it would take closer to 500. But if he was wrong on the scale, he was not incorrect in terms of the direction and the degradation because if you if you followed all the ads, all the the sub explicit and and uh, subliminal messages, you, you would live a, a terribly unhealthy, unproductive life. You would be getting shots that give you blood clots. You would be eating junk food. You would be gambling away your money. You would be funneling a lot of your energy into people and organizations that don't care about you and that if they had a better deal in some other city, uh, they would take it. If they had a better deal playing for another team, the vast majority of the players would take it. Yeah, interestingly, it's just, people really don't cheer for players. It don't follow players, don't root for players. They root, root and follow and cheer for jerseys. If someone, the color of the jersey, not even the number of the name, um, free agency means that players are a lot less loyal to the teams that they play for and are paid by than are the fans who pay their salaries. And it might at first blush seem like this is an elite perspective that we're giving here, but uh, it's not, actually. The top 1% would recoil at the analysis that we're providing here. Uh, they are the ones who are celebrating a lot of this. Uh, if, if they were to poll, say, the average middle American football viewer on what they want to see, it wouldn't be wouldn't be these artists. Uh, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be the ads. It wouldn't be the black national anthem. That's not even something that's really popular among mainstream blacks. It's it's this is all top one percent elite beliefs, those luxury beliefs on display being force fed to the masses that 
inherently the enjoyment comes from the competition from the the game being played itself uh, but it provides an opportunity for these luxury beliefs to be broadcasts uh, but the the top one percent the elites would not call any of this degenerate at all. They'd call it progressive. They would celebrate it. They do celebrate it. I actually was surprised to see Taylor Swift associating herself so closely with an artist, if you can use that word, ice uh, artist like Ice Spice. I, I can't even read. I wanted. I actually pulled up her lyrics because I wanted to read some of them, and then I realized that if I can't, literally can't read a single line without using curse words, and I don't want to have to uh, put a special warning on this podcast, but. Suffice to say, if you just look up uh, Think You the Shit parentheses Fart by Ice Spice and just look at the lyrics, and this is – it's kind of a uh, – again, it's it's disheartening because I think as far as pop artists go, Taylor Swift is, is quite wholesome, and to see her you know, associating with somebody like Ice Spice, there are young girls who are going to listen to – her music because of her association with Taylor Swift. And uh, like Ness was saying, middle America, this, this degeneracy is just put front and center and middle America continues to watch the Super Bowl. The ratings are the highest. I believe it's the most watched TV event of all time. So it really makes perfect sense why companies would go down this route because they can do that. And, for the most part, their profits are not going to be damaged at all. They can virtue signal and, and their profits might even go up because middle America is going to continue to consume the products. Now, there are a few exceptions, I think, like Bud Light uh, seems like the the backlash was real and it actually did affect Anheuser-Busch's bottom line. But I think that's the exception and it's generally pretty short-lived. So it really makes sense why they would uh, companies would keep going down this route. Well, yeah, when it comes to something that's an interchangeable commodity where there's a bunch of other options that are effectively indistinguishable, there can be some consequence for flipping the middle finger to the beliefs of a large percentage of the customer base. And so that's what we saw with like Bud Light. You can you can go to Coors Light or Jungling or any of these other beer brands that effectively all taste the same, that are made the same, that, that have the same sort of status, no higher or lower. Uh, but when it comes to what is effectively a sought-after, distinguished, specific brand like, say, football, the NFL, at the highest level, well, there is no other perceived alternative in the, in the cultural space. And so in that case, it, it really doesn't matter what is fed and it doesn't matter how offensive it may or may not be to those consuming. If there is no other cultural option, then they're going to keep coming back to it. In the case of Taylor Swift, I think it shows just how important, how, how important status is and how even someone who is the, I mean, the Michael Jackson of her day, the, the most popular musical act uh, who can f- fill stadiums with triple-digit Ticket prices in a matter of hours, everywhere she goes, still has to effectively bend the knee in terms of those luxury beliefs that we talked about earlier. For a long time, Taylor Swift refused to make any comments on contentious cultural issues 
that the divide between the, the beliefs of the the luxury beliefs of the top one percent and that of the rest of the country. Uh, but over time, that pressure just kept building and building, and, and somewhat paradoxically, as she became more and more popular, the pressure became more and more insurmountable and she eventually broke I, f I forget what it was over I think it was over maybe same-sex marriage uh, but I'd have to check to be sure uh, and since then she's just parroted all of the the luxury beliefs that we were alluding to earlier on on everything uh, and it's also tragic to hear I didn't know who this ice spice was I had never even heard of her until Jeff brought her up here she stands in sharp contrast to Taylor Swift who Although her, her music is vapid, bubblegum pop type of stuff, it does have the three essential elements of music in it. It has rhythm, it has melody, it has harmony. Um, and the lyrics, while, again, pretty empty, pretty saccharine, are, are still sensible. Like, this song that Jeff was referring to, if you read the lyrics, it's it's almost incomprehensible. Like, I... I don't even know what it is that she's trying to say. It would be like if I asked ChatGBT to give me the lyrics of a pop song, the most popular pop song in Idiocracy, in the movie Idiocracy. The output would be this I Spice song. All right, let's leave it there. Thanks for listening to The Reality Taboo. We'll talk to you next time.